It's good to have your company. I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and you are listening to The Bible Teachers. I'm having a series of conversations with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, Is God for Real? This is the second program in the series. Last time we addressed the question, Does God Exist? We looked at some important evidences for design in the universe and also discussed why the presence of a sense of morality in people is strong evidence for the existence of a designer. Today we're examining the question, is there anything we can trust? Before we go to our topic today, I will introduce Peter Watts again for those who didn't get us last time. Peter was born in the United Kingdom and hasn't always been a Christian. Growing up, if he thought about religion at all, it was to identify himself variously as an atheist or an agnostic. Peter's journey from unbelief to belief is fascinating and has helped shape the direction of his ministry. Peter enjoys helping people address the big questions and to find meaning and joy in their lives. Hello, Peter. Hello, Barry. Welcome again. Thank you. It's good to be here. Peter, it seems that despite all the betrayal of trust that goes on in our world, people still place an importance on trust. Why is that, do you think? Well, yeah, it seems to be very important to us as human beings, doesn't it? I, I think, um, you know, we all love a good story and people will often escape to fiction and fantasy, you know, uh, to maybe ex- escape the mundane in life or maybe even escape some of the challenges of life. But at the same time, we all want to know what's real, what's true, what's uh, foundational, what's uh, what can we rely upon? Um, and I think that... Um, for everyone, we want to know uh, what's a good foundation upon which I can be- uh, base my life. Um, values, we talk a lot, you hear in the media a lot about values, and sometimes uh, different nations express different values towards different things. And, and, you know, we might, as Australians, criticise another country because they don't have the same values. Uh, but why should they? <laughs> or uh, where do our values come from? Um, and I think that um, trust is, is something that um, we'd like to think that we're trustworthy and we'd like to think others are trustworthy too. And when that is betrayed, uh, we get hurt by that. Why is it so confronting to us to have a betrayal of trust? I think that when there is somebody we trust, I mean, if it's a personal relationship, if there's somebody we've put our trust in, it might be uh, a close relative, it might be somebody we love, it might be our spouse, it might be our children, it might be our parents. Um, And of course, in those relationships, you're often um, uh, sharing deep personal things about yourself with that person. And so when that trust is broken, uh, you feel that something of your own has been stolen. Uh, on the other hand, when it's institutions, when it may be um, the media or sporting personalities or whoever it may be, uh, we just uh, we, we get a sense of betrayal that, that something that we thought was just so actually turns out to be very different. I'm thinking of the situation with Lance Armstrong, for example. Sure. Why was that? Why was that so confronting? Well, I, I, I myself, Lance Armstrong was somebody I would use as an example um, in conversations that I would have, in talks that I would give. Um, Lance Armstrong was, go, was often um, 
An example I would use is someone who had triumphed over great adversity uh, because he had had cancer and he'd come back from that, he'd recovered from that, and then he won seven back-to-back Tour de France's, which was unheard of him. It was just uh, incredible. Uh, and, of course, because of those uh, that great success, some had asked the question, well, could he be using performance-enhancing substances? And he would uh, vehemently deny that, of course. Uh, on a number of occasions, he would um, vehemently deny that. But eventually, he had to come out and uh, admit that that, in fact, was the case. And then all of his uh, titles were stripped from him. And I think that when those things happen, uh, it sort of uh, shakes people's confidence in what they think they know. Mm. I mean, we could look at another example recently in the news. Rolf Harris has been convicted uh, of certain um, assaults. And again, he was somebody when I was growing up, uh, he was a great entertainer and everybody loved Rolf Harris. I grew up in the UK where he would have art shows where he would do his paintings or he would have animal shows. And uh, everybody loved Rolf Harris, you know, and yet uh, here now, uh, we are discovering things and, and suddenly that shakes uh, part of your own sort of cultural history and who you think you are and what you think the world's about. Hmm. What about politics? <laughs> well, uh, it's interesting. In the last election, for instance, where you had uh, Tony Abbott and Kevin Rudd, Kevin Rudd was the uh, sitting prime minister. He'd just returned. And uh, one uh, ABC commentator, uh, in regard to the lead-up to the election between Abbott and Rudd, he said, the real question isn't who do you trust, but rather who do you distrust least? Um, And I thought that was an interesting comment, and it was under the headline, The Trust Card. Uh, And I think that that's a sad commentary, really, um, on the fact that so often people are choosing in terms of who they're going to vote for in terms of who they distrust the least rather than whom they believe is going to lead the country well. And, I, you know, that's gone on for a long time, I think. Uh, and, of course, you know, politicians don't always help themselves in that regard. Um, sometimes uh, we as a public demand them to make promises that then they can't keep. Um, and so in terms of young people... Um, People are often, it's been um, surveyed that uh, the young are tending to put more trust, more faith in uh, their friends, their cultural group, uh, people they talk to on social media than they are in, in figures that they see on the news. Uh, and that's interesting uh, because they're, they're choosing to trust a friend rather than somebody they don't know personally. The politicians are still playing the trust card, aren't they? Oh, yes. I mean, uh, when they go to elections, they're often um, asking people to put their trust in you. They're, they're, usually what happens, you, you see a lot of painting of the other side. Uh, if you're in opposition, you're painting the government as what they've done wrong in the last three or four years or what have you. Uh, if you're the government, you're painting a picture of what the other side will or won't do when they get in. And, and it becomes far more about... Um, trying to get the public to distrust your opposition than it does about yourself. Are we becoming more resigned to betrayal of trust? Uh, I think that there are a lot of people who are looking around for and wondering what is there that we can trust. Um, you know, talking of politics, I, I was just uh, thinking about 
the leaders uh, that we have in in our political system. If you think about um, Mike Baird, who is uh, the New South Wales Premier, uh, Tony Abbott, of course, is Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, then we have the Queen of the Commonwealth. Um, if you think of these figures, you think of Barack Obama, who's the President of America, David Cameron, uh, Prime Minister of Great Britain, even uh, Sir Peter Cosgrove, who's the Governor General in Australia. Uh, if I was to ask you, what do all of these leaders have in common? Um, they're all uh, leaders, political leaders in, in their various ways. But what else would they have in common? And perhaps what might surprise some people is that each one of these leaders were sworn into office by placing their hand on the Bible and swearing that they would do the right thing uh, in taking that office. Uh, and I think that's fascinating because it tells us that the Bible still play, uh, plays a prominent role in our political system, in the leadership of our country, in the leadership of the Commonwealth, in the leadership of other nations around the world. Why the Bible? Why not a phone book, for example? Yeah, exactly. Um, that, that's the point. Now, of course, people will say, well, that's just tradition. Um, but certainly in the case of the six leaders that I mentioned, uh, that's a tr tradition they're happy to continue to uphold. And it's interesting because uh, people have a choice these days. They don't have to be sworn in on the Bible, but they've clearly chosen to do that. Um, and this is, of course, because the Bible is regarded as not just some ordinary book. It has been regarded for hundreds of years, thousands of years, as the Word of God. And therefore, by placing uh, those leaders, by placing their hand on that book and swearing an oath, uh, stating that they will do the right thing in their role of uh, office, uh, they're, they're basically saying this is the highest authority. That's the reason that the Bible is used. That's the reason we don't use the dictionary or the phone book or some other book. It's because the Bible is considered, at least by those people and by many others, of course, to be not any ordinary book but the Word of God. Well, if the Bible is considered to be a source of authority then obviously there are going to be evidences for it. Why should we take the Bible seriously? Well, it's fascinating because, um, you know, when uh, we came to the end of the millennium, the year 1999, people were looking back, you know, as we do, we look back on a, a century and, or we look back on the year's events. We were looking back over the last thousand years uh, because we were coming to the end of a millennium and, uh I, I noticed in uh, a Melbourne newspaper that they had um, surveyed all of the major events of the last thousand years, uh, and they highlighted the most important event of the last thousand years was the printing of the Gutenberg Bible uh, in 1450. Uh, and this was, I guess, for two reasons. Number one, the invention of the printing press allowed information to be uh, shared more, far more widely than ever before. Uh, but also, it's just fascinating to me that that was the book, the first book printed on the printing press. Um, I was in um, Manchester a few months ago, and I went to the John Rylands uh, Library in part of the uh, Manchester University. And uh, they have a copy of the Gutenberg Bible. I think there are only 11 uh, no, 13, I think, in existence. And I couldn't even see it. They had it locked in a vault. Uh, I wasn't able to see it. But uh, they value that book at £66 million. Um, so it was fascinating that, that they had a copy there. But 
Interesting that the most significant event of the last 1,000 years was the printing of the Gutenberg Bible. And I believe not just because of the information age that the printing press gave us, but also the fact that the Bible was returned in large part to the people. Mm. Uh, The more Bibles that were printed, the more able people were able to read it for themselves. Uh, And the the Bible actually says of itself, uh, the entrance of thy word brings light. Uh, and I believe it brought understanding and uh, information to people. So in your mind, is the Bible an ultimate source of authority? Well, obviously I can speak from a subjective point of view. Um, I can uh, say from my own reading of the Bible and not having been brought up reading the Bible or not, in fact, being brought up with a notion that the Bible really was a book of myths and fairy tales and legends. Uh, But having read the Bible myself and continue to read the Bible myself. I found it to be the word of God to my soul. I believe that uh, the Bible helps me in so many ways. It helps me in my day-to-day life. It helps me with my family relationships. It helps me in my work. It helps me in the way I see myself. It helps me in the way I see the world. Um, And uh, there's just numerous ways in which that book has helped me with my life. That's a personal testimony about what the Bible does for me. Um, But I think in terms of, you know, even for those, even when I was a non-believer, even when I was someone who didn't read the Bible, it's amazing how much of the Bible we use in common speech. We use, in the common English language, if you you go to countries where English is the, the national language, Um, we use terms all the time that are derived from the Bible and we may not realise it. So much has that book influenced the English language. So if I say some of these phrases like uh, money is the root of all evil, uh, go the extra mile, the two-edged sword, turn the other cheek, a stone's throw, do unto others, uh, the writings on the wall, um, weak as water, doubting Thomas, a man after my own heart, the powers that be, and on and on. And there's so many of them. We could go on and on all, all day. Phrases that we use in common language that are derived from the Bible, that's how much influence the Bible has had on our just our language of our culture. Well, would you like to take us through some of the evidences for the trustworthiness of the Bible? Sure. I think, first of all, it's important to understand what the Bible claims about itself because just the claims of the Bible himself are quite amazing. Now, of course, those claims need to be tested, and that's what we want to do. Uh, one of the claims in the Bible in, um, the, in the New Testament, in 2 Timothy uh, 3:15 to 17, uh, Paul is writing to his friend Timothy. He says, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, that's the Bible, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And then it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and so forth. So it says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And what the the term really means there is it's God-breathed. In other words, those who wrote the Bible uh, claim that these were not their ideas. This was not them saying, I think I'm going to write a book about the world or about God. No, they were claiming that God impressed them with what was wrote, what was written. And therefore, the Bible itself claims to be of divine origin. Now, there are very few books in the world that claim that. I might write a book about religion. I might even, you know, start a religion or whatever. But Very few books actually claim that these words came from God. 
that these ideas came from God, the content of this book. So it's a pretty large claim. That's either, a huge claim. It's either true or it's not true. Exactly. Yeah, another claim is given in Second uh, Peter one nineteen to twenty one, um, where it says, uh, "No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation." which is interesting. You've probably heard people say, well, that's your interpretation, that's my interpretation, you read this and I interpret it differently. The Bible itself says that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. That means that we should all be able to get the message publicly, doesn't it? Well, I believe that the Bible is its own interpreter. In other words, uh, where you come across a passage that may seem difficult for you to understand, I believe the answers can be found other places in the Bible. I, I believe that the Bible interprets itself. But it says, No prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So here again is another claim that the Bible was not compiled by the will of man, but rather... Men were moved upon by the Holy Spirit, and then they wrote. So this is quite a significant claim to begin with, that the Bible itself, you know, it wasn't a bestseller in its day. In other words, people weren't selling them and making huge amounts of money. I was the author of this book, and I'm making a fortune. On the contrary, many of the people who wrote the Bible for us, who were moved by God to do so, were persecuted for what they wrote, and some of them died because of what they wrote. So there was nothing to gain for them by writing this. They wrote it because they were inspired by God to write. Um, and so uh, that's a, a fascinating claim of the Bible. Not many books. I'm intrigued by that notion that uh, there's no private interpretation around the prophecy. That means that the evidence should be convincing in the public domain. Yes, and I believe it is. And clear. Yeah, I believe it is. I mean, there are many, many prophecies in, in the Bible. Um, we'll look at a little, uh, a few of them uh, also. But if you look at the Bible, what it is, um, because I didn't know this growing up. I didn't know much about the Bible. I didn't know anything about the Bible. It's interesting because I had a lot of preconceived ideas about the Bible. In fact, if you went down to the shopping mall and interviewed people and said, um, tell me what you think the Bible is or what do you think of the Bible, just about everybody will give you an answer. But I wonder how many people have read it. I would have easily given you... Uh, quite a, a paragraph of, of an answer of what I thought of the Bible, having never read a page. Uh, and that's quite remarkable that I would have that opinion. Of so course, you were getting your impressions from other of people? Of course. It was second-hand sources. Second -hand, yeah. You know, what does the society think? What did my family think? Uh, what did my culture think? Uh, those were the, the feeds if you like, for what I thought of the Bible, and I really never read the book. So if we think about the Bible, what is it? Uh, it's actually a library, really. It's a collection of books. It's a collection of 66 different documents, um, and they are produced by 35-plus different authors from many different backgrounds. It was written by kings and fishermen and shepherds and people from all different walks of life. Um, it's also written over a period of 1,500 years, so the first five books of, Mo uh, of the Bible were written by Moses about 1500 BC uh, and then all the way through to the New Testament, which was finished up around the end of the first century AD. Uh, by 100 AD, we believe the end of the New Testament had been completed. So over about a 1500-year period, you have 35-plus different authors writing um, on similar themes 
Uh, they wrote on three different continents, Asia, Europe, Africa, um, and in three different languages. It's written Hebrew and Aramaic and Greek. Um, and yet, uh, one of the most remarkable things about the Bible, given all of those stats we've just shared, there is one unified message about the identity of God, about creation, about mankind, about salvation, about justice, about heaven, about death, and a whole host of other things. And that's one of the, I guess, internal consistency is one of the hallmarks of divine authorship of the Bible. When you have a document that's written over a period of 1,500 years by that many different authors from so many different backgrounds, uh, different cultures, different countries, and yet they have a unified theme, it strongly suggests that there is some divine hand over the whole project. Mm. Well, where, where are we going now? Well, we could look at some of the uh, other evidence. I mean, we talk, uh, for instance, we just talked about its internal consistency and the fact that these different writers uh, wrote consistently on various themes. Uh, and what's interesting, too, uh, Barry, is, is the writers were not self-promoting. The writers were not trying to get you to read this so that you will think good of me. No, they were trying to convey a message so that we would draw our, uh, that would draw our attention to God. In fact, uh, the children of Israel as a nation in the Old Testament, uh, they were God's people, not in as much as God loved them more than anybody else, but rather he chose them to be the ones who would deliver his message to others. The Bible seems to me to be a fairly strange book mm. if you're trying to establish a religion um, on human grounds, because mm. if if it was a human religion, you wouldn't put in all the negative bits, would you? That's right. Well, this is the point I'm making. The children of Israel, uh, they're uh, roundly condemned on so many occasions in the Old Testament, and this is their book. This is uh, their book about their God. And again, this to me highlights the honesty, I guess, of those who were writing. Uh, God was not trying to cover up the mistakes of his people, hmm. uh, or they were not trying to cover up their mistakes. They're open about the fact that they made many errors, many poor choices, many poor judgments, and these are recorded in the history of the Bible. It's amazing that a people who have such a negative record would uh, treasure their scriptures so much. It is, isn't interesting. I mean, it's quite a, uh, it's quite a strange uh, history for a nation that would include so many of their uh, fallible traits. I understand that the Egyptians, for example, didn't uh, record necessarily the negative things. Or their, or their defeats in war and that sort of thing. Yeah, well, we'll talk a little bit about the Egyptians in a moment, but that's true. You can go there and you see on their ancient monuments uh, depictions, the hieroglyphs, the, the pictures of uh, great victories that their kings had, but uh, you won't see too many stories about their defeats. They so weren't proud of those. So that's a complete contrast with, mm. with what the Bible is doing. It is. I believe so. I think about... Um, the author C.S. Lewis, most people have heard of the author C.S. Lewis because of the Chronicles of Narnia, um, and, uh, but he was a great theologian. He was an Oxford scholar, and uh, C.S. Lewis um, was asked once, he said, how would you defend the Bible? And his answer was interesting. He said, uh, the same way I would defend a lion. 
let it out of the cage. And I think what he meant by that is allow the Bible to speak for itself, read it yourself, and I believe it will be its best defense. I had a very uh, definite opinion about the Bible before I had read it. Uh, I now have a very different opinion about the Bible, having read it a number of times and continue to read it. Uh, I think it's uh, the most fascinating the book in the world. But beyond that, I believe it is the Word of God, and it, it's uh, it it had uh, it has divine fingerprints all over it. What are some of the other evidences? Well, um, we could look at um, archaeological evidences. We could look at fulfilled prophecy. We could look at historical accuracy. Um, We could look at the manuscript evidence in terms of uh, has the Bible of hundreds of years ago been passed down to us accurately because that's an important question. Um, So those are a number of areas we could look at. Uh, But also, as I said before, um, there is also the personal evidence Uh, the evidence of people's lives, not just mine, but millions of other people who would claim that their lives have been positively impacted by the the message of the Bible. Hmm. So where are we going to go next with all those lists of things that we had? Well, we could look at some of the archaeological and historical evidence and then perhaps some of the prophetic evidence. Let's make a start on the archaeology. Okay. Yeah, well, first of all, uh, perhaps even before we go there, if you go back a couple of hundred years... uh, Two, two, three hundred years ago, the Bible was regarded as authoritative. We talked about politicians using it as a, a you know, a symbol of authority. Uh, and that's how it was regarded. Two to three hundred years ago, people in the Western society, at least in Western culture, believed that the Bible was the word of God. Then we came to a period, um, we come to the period of the age of reason. We come to the period where higher criticism of the Bible become fashionable. And um, I think, you know, if we think about the Enlightenment, there were people during the time of the Enlightenment that really wanted to improve the lot of man and they wanted to uh, move away from myths, fables, superstition, legends to what was factual, what was real. Uh, And so many people in regard to the Age of Enlightenment uh, were, were trying to improve the lot of mankind. Uh, and that that was commendable, but one of the things they they um, one of the principles they worked on was the empiricist method. In other words, things needed to be scientifically proven to be accepted. And as higher criticism of the Bible became fashionable, people began to look at the Bible. They began to look at the miracles in the Bible uh, and begin to doubt them. You know, they might talk about well, Jesus walked on the water. The Bible talks about that. There's, there's no evidence that we could show today where a person can walk on the water. So people began to doubt that that happened. Uh, and then beyond the miracles in the Bible that were being doubted, then they said, well, if the miracles in the Bible are not trustworthy, then maybe the historical facts of the Bible are also not trustworthy. And we began to look at the Bible as something to be uh, doubted until proven. Mm. Um, and so... Uh, Now, the reason that's important, because about 200 years ago, higher criticism became uh, started to develop in regard to the Bible and became more fashionable throughout the 19th century uh, and certainly into the 20th. And then along comes archaeology as a science that develops at exactly, you know, about the same time uh, that actually begins to demonstrate the authenticity of the or the reliability of the history of the Bible. 
Maybe when we come back you can uh, give us some examples of that. But right now I'd like to go to a break and when we come back Peter will continue his survey of evidences for the trustworthiness of the Bible. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABM Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973 3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 61 4973 Our email address is radio at 3 abn That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia, all one word, .org.au. Our postal address is 3ABN Australia, Inc., P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. You are listening to The Bible Teachers. If you have just joined us, I'm Dr. Barry Harker, and I'm speaking with Pastor Peter Watts on the question, is there anything we can trust? Peter is doing a survey of the evidences for the trustworthiness of the Bible. When we left off before the break, we were talking about archaeology. So where are we going with this now, Peter? Well, archaeology became, in a way, uh, an important um, science that developed uh, really out of uh, people wanting to know whether the history of the Bible uh, was true. They could go to some of the places mentioned in the Bible and look for historical evidence, archaeological evidence, of the, the history of the Bible. So um, this was at a time when um, higher criticism of the Bible was becoming popular at the beginning of the 19th century. Um, and so the science of archaeology really developed at the, the time when the Bible was coming under um, attack, if you, if you will, um, where its uh, reliability was being challenged. And so if you think about um, in 1799, uh, we have the discovery of the Rosetta Stone. And uh, this was discovered by uh, Napoleon's men in northern Egypt. And um, it was a, it's a big piece of black basalt stone. You can see it in the British Museum in London. Um, been there many times to see it. And uh, the reason it was important was it had a script written on it uh, in three different languages, uh, one script and then another and then another. And uh, the scripts were Egyptian hieroglyphs, and then there was Egyptian demotic, and then there was ancient Greek. And the Demotic is the script, isn't it? Yeah, it, well, the Demotic, it's, it's another ancient Egyptian writing. Now, the importance of, of it was, at that time in 1799, we could not understand. Nobody knew how to read Egyptian hieroglyphs. Um, you know, the monuments of Egypt are plastered with all of these hieroglyphs. They're, they're, they're everywhere, but nobody could read them. The ancient Egyptians had long gone. Uh, Egypt has been... Um, occupied by many different nations since that time. The pharaohs, the people of the pharaohs, they don't exist anymore. Um, and so nobody could read these uh, hieroglyphs. And because uh, we could read the ancient Greek at the bottom, people knew how to read ancient Greek. Uh, there was a, uh, a French uh, scholar, Jean-Francois Champollion, who was brilliant at languages, and he managed to decipher over a period of time. 1822 was when he actually unlocked 
the Egyptian hieroglyphs, and that allowed us to read the hieroglyphs in Egypt. Um, and, of course, they've been studied from that day to this. Uh, the reason that that was important was there's a group of people in the Bible called the Hittites. They appear many, many times in the Old Testament. And the Hittites were a group of people that higher critics had said, well, maybe these were just le- legendary. Maybe these were this was a myth. These were another made-up story uh, in the Bible. They didn't really exist, and their existence was challenged because we didn't see any evidence of the Hittites. We hadn't known about any evidence. Um, but once the hieroglyphs of ancient Egypt were opened up, uh, there was we could read about battles between the Egyptians and the Hittites, a people called the Hittites. And suddenly the Hittites moved from being myths and legends to actually being a real people. In the Bible, there's a place where the Hittites are mentioned in a list of nations and they're mentioned above the Egyptians, which meant at that time that they were, they were, was, the suggestion is that they were even more powerful than the Egyptians. Um, of course, today you can go to eastern Turkey and you can visit Hattusa, which is uh, the ancient capital of, of the Hittites. Uh, and in 1986, it was a, made a World Heritage Site by UNESCO. And so the, the point here is uh, higher criticism of the Bible had suggested the Hittites, they're a legendary people. They don't really exist. We don't have any evidence of them uh, existing except for the writings of the Bible. So therefore, the writings of the Bible must be inaccurate. And now, of course... It's a World Heritage listed site. So um, that's one archaeological evidence, uh, one um, example of how archaeologically archaeology has helped to establish the historical background of the Bible. Are there others? Oh, yes. Uh, well, there are many, many others. So there have been so many archaeological uh, finds. We could think about Ur of the Chaldees in uh, Iraq, modern-day Iraq. Of course, Iraq makes the, the news often today for all the wrong reasons. Um, but in the south of the country, there's a, pl- a place called Ur of the Chaldees. Now, of course, uh, in the Bible, Ur of the Chaldees was the place from where Abraham uh, came. Mm. And uh, Abraham, of course, is regarded as uh, one of the fathers of uh, the faith of Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Very, very important figure in, in ancient history. And yet, higher criticism had suggested that maybe Abraham was a fictitious figure, didn't really exist. Nobody had ever heard of Ur of the Chaldees. Um, but then in the uh, early 20th century, Sir Leonard Woolley did some excavations on behalf of the British Museum, and he found the royal tombs in Ur of the Chaldees and found many other uh, places there too. And uh, you can visit the British Museum. I actually even, uh, there was a... Um, exhibit down in Melbourne uh, a couple of years ago on Mesopotamia where they were showing some of the artefacts that had been recovered from Ur of the Chaldees. And so again, uh, then, of course, Abraham became, well, maybe Abraham did really exist. Maybe he was a real character. This place did really exist. And so archaeology helped to establish uh, the historicity of the Bible. Uh, Another one we could mention um, was in the book of Daniel, the Old Testament, the book of Daniel, it claims to be written about 600 B.C., 500 to 600 B.C., uh, at the time when the Jews were taken captive to Babylon. Uh, and it records uh, the time when Babylon fell to the Medes and the Persians. Uh, and the king reigning at that time was Belshazzar, according to the Bible. Well, that name was not known among scholars at that time outside of the Bible. And they said, well, Here is another example 
the Bible must be making up this story because we have a list of kings from a separate uh, source that lists Nabonidus as the last king, king of Babylon, and therefore uh, the Bible must be wrong. Um, but then we found... Uh, and if the Bible's wrong on a significant fact like that, it would seem to invalidate the Bible, wouldn't it? Because we saw before that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So if you've got major historical errors like that, that would seem to be a well, cross that's against right. the Bible. If, you're, if you can't trust the history of the Bible, then uh, what would lead you to trust it in terms of guidance for your personal life? Hmm. Uh, what would lead you to believe that this was actually of divine origin? Um, so the historicity of the Bible is an important element. Um, and uh, when we're talking about Belshazzar, uh, archaeologists discovered the Nabonidus cylinder upon which was a message from Nabonidus to his son Belshazzar. Uh, whom it appears was co-regent with him and was reigning on the night that Babylon fell. And so uh, these and many, many other evidences from the world of archaeology have served to enlarge our understanding of the Bible and have served in many cases to um, authenticate the historicity of the Bible. Have there been any instances where we have evidence that can decide the question about some aspect of historicity in the Bible and it's actually proved the Bible wrong? Well, in terms of archaeology, many archaeologists, uh, for instance, wouldn't agree with the uh, chronology of the Bible. Um, and so uh, chronology is an area of, of uh, interest amongst archaeologists and there are a number of views about... Sometimes we get the impression, as with science, that with archaeology, that all archaeologists ag uh, agree. Uh, and that would not be the case. That wouldn't be true. Often uh, people will um, recover uh, some evidence... And they will give their interpretation of what that evidence means. Another archaeologist will maybe argue for a different for a different interpretation of the same evidence. So uh, that's that's to be because obviously there will be people who um, who are archaeologists that but don't believe in the historicity of the Bible, and we must understand that you know those things that are found, those evidences that are found in archaeology, they don't have voices. We can't ask them questions. We can only observe what is there. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, another um, evidence was um, the name David. The Bible mentions David's name probably more than any other. Um, the name David appears hundreds of times in the Bible. And uh, there are all sorts of stories about the house of David and what happened during his lifetime. Now, again, David as a character had been called into question as to whether he existed or not. Um, and then in as recently as 1993, they found uh, the Tell Dan Steely, uh, which contained the phrase, the house of David. Um, and uh, again, that was evidence for the fact that, that that phrase was, at least people were aware of that phrase, uh, whether that's specifically talking about the house of David during the t time of David, but it lends evidence to that. I'm getting the impression that we need to be careful about being sceptical about various aspects of the Bible. Well, it's interesting. You know, we're, we're encouraged to be sceptical because we don't want to be taken in. We don't want to miss, you know, place our trust. Um, but I also think that today 
the fashionable thing to do is to be sceptical of the Bible, but not sceptical of scientists, scholars, others who may criticise the Bible. Uh, what are their agendas? What are their biases? Uh, could they be wrong? Um, so, you know, I think at the end of the day, uh, we all have to choose what is our highest authority. Hmm. Is it going to be a man, a scientist, a man in a white lab coat? Um, is it going to be an author of many books, um, somebody who's got many doctorates? Um, is it going to be my next door neighbor? Is it going to be somebody I talk to on Facebook? Who is going to be my highest authority? Is it me? Is it my opinion? Is it my small mind having only a few years on this planet that's going to determine what truth is? I think of a concept that C.S. Lewis um, outlined, and that was the concept of chronological snobbery. So we seem to believe that anything that's new is almost automatically better than something that's old. Okay. So if we get an account of the past that's old, then clearly there's got to be deficiencies in it because we you know, have more information about these things today. Well, so I think that's part of it. That's part of it. But I think even beyond that, Barry, we could say that there's almost a bias against the Bible. And... When you read the Bible, you can understand why that might be, because the Bible is telling us there is someone to whom we give account. There is a right way of behaving and a wrong way of behaving. There are morals and values and principles in the Bible that we may personally not agree with. And so there is always a, a motivation there. There's always a reason for saying, well, we want to hold that book at arm's, arm's length. I don't want to accept the authority of that book because it may have implications for my life. But the point is, I think there is a bias against the Bible. In other words, if we go to Egypt and we see some hieroglyphs on a wall or a story on a wall uh, where such and such happened at a particular place, we say, ah, oh, that must have happened. The hieroglyphs tell us it happened. We believe that happens. And yet an ancient inscription that we, uh, an ancient uh, piece of writing called the Bible when we read that, we have to doubt that until we have some corroborating evidence, hmm. you see. Uh, and some people say, well, yes, but that's religious. Well, if you go to Egypt, all the text is religious too. Um, so, you know, you go to the ancient world, religion was wrapped up in their whole society. And yet if you read the hier hieroglyphs, they don't always necessarily tell you all the truth. Exactly. About, well, we mentioned before they won't talk about the many defeats or... Uh, the fallacies or the fallible, the fallibility rather of their rulers and uh, their people, uh, whereas the the Bible gives you the story warts and all. And um, I think uh, again, I just think there's a difference in in the way we evaluate age, um, evidence. There's an ancient text. We see another ancient ancient text. Uh, we're accepting of that one, but not of the biblical one. I don't think it's necessarily bad that we hold the Bible to a high standard. No, not at all. I think that's right. I think the, we should test the claims. I mean, we ma mentioned before earlier that the Bible makes some very dramatic claims about where its authorship came from, where it, its origin came from. So uh, those, you know, those claims should be tested. But I believe that they bear um, personal investigation and they, they, uh, they attest uh, to their own... Uh, divine, uh, divine origin. What about the manuscript evidence? A lot of people would say, well, how do we know that we've actually got the text that was originally written? And that's a very good question because uh, if you take the Old Testament, the Bible's divided into the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament was written before Jesus came and the New Testament was written after Jesus came. 
And so um, the, the, those two, two different aspects. The Old Testament was written from about 1500 BC through to about 400 BC. And um, if we looked at, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century, the oldest manuscripts that we possessed to base our Old Testament, the, the, the Old Testament of the Bibles that we pick up today and read, the oldest manuscripts that we had uh, to base that Old Testament text on were from about 900 AD, which means that they were 14, 1,500 years removed, 13, 1,400 years removed from the writings themselves. And critics of the Bible would say, how can you be sure that what you have is what they wrote? How do you know that what you have today isn't, hasn't been changed either deliberately or accidentally? Uh, if you and I were writing out a page of text uh, and we left that to our grandson to write out and he left it to his grandson and so forth, you might expect that there may be changes in the text over time. Errors that may creep in, uh, deliberate changes, or, or what have you. Um, and so that was um, a criticism that was raised about the Bible at the early part of the 20th century. Then in 1947, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Uh, and this is in Qumran on the west, uh, northwest bank of the Dead Sea. Um, and the story goes that um, there was a, a, a goat herder. Uh, Muhammad al-Dahib, he was uh, walking his goats through that uh, place and there were some caves there and one of his goats wandered into a cave and he threw some stones into that cave to try and chase the goat out and he heard the shattering of pottery and uh, he went, raced up there hoping to find treasure. What he found were scrolls that we now uh, understand were the Dead Sea Scrolls. I think it would have been infinitely more valuable than any treasure he, <laughs> well, you he could see, have found. He, he was probably looking for gold or something, but he didn't realise, I think, what he had found. Uh, he, he, of course, uh, informed others, um, and eventually they, uh, they were uh, identified for what they were. What we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in 1947 are all the books of the Old Testament represented there except the Book of Esther. Uh, we have biblical commentaries of Old Testament books, psalms and hymns, and we also have some sectarian material belonging to the Qumran community itself. Um, so those are the three main types of documents that you have in the collection of the Dead Sea Scrolls. But what the Dead Sea Scrolls did was it validated the Old Testament that we have today. You could take the scroll of Isaiah, for instance, and read it and understand that the Old Testament that we have today is essentially unchanged from the Old Testament of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which was written one to two centuries BC. That's pretty amazing. How do you explain that? Well, when, we, when archaeologists excavated in Qumran and they uncovered the Qumran community, uh, they discovered something of the people that, that lived there. They were very meticulous about the way in which they copied out the, the Old Testament. Somebody might say, well, the writings of Moses, do you have any of the actual pages that Moses wrote upon? Of course, no, we, we don't. Pages 
over time, especially if you're reading them and you're using them, that deteriorates over time. So you need to make a copy of them to preserve them. These were the days before Microsoft and printers and uh, WordPerfect and all of those things. And so um, they would be meticulous in writing them down because what's important to understand is they did not believe this was, you know, mother's shopping list or something. This was, they believed, the word of God. And therefore, the way in which they copied it the process, the procedures they put in place for copying it were very important to them. And so they would count letters, they would count words on a page uh, to make sure. They would wash, they would bathe before writing uh, in order to um, purify themselves before they wrote this out. And they would count the words and the letters on the previous document and count the same on the new document to ensure that what they had was what was on the original. And so... um, we, we're very confident that uh, what we have in our Old Testament um, is, is what was written. Uh, I'll, I'll read for, for you um, a comment by Dr. Gleason Archer. He said, Two copies of Isaiah found in the caves, the Dead Sea Scrolls, proved to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% variation consisted chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling, which is quite remarkable when you consider there's a thousand years difference between the two manuscripts. So essentially we can trust the text of the Bible that we have today. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Siegfried Horn, um, he wrote about the Dead Sea Scrolls. He says its text proves that since this copy was written probably in the second century BC or in the first, the book of Isaiah has not experienced any change. Everyone who has worked with this scroll has been profoundly impressed by the unmistakable fact that this 2,000-year-old Bible manuscript contains exactly the text we possess today. Well, are there any other areas, Peter, that you'd like to draw to our attention? Well, probably just to talk about the New Testament. that We talked there briefly about the Old Testament. Uh, the New Testament... When we talk about ancient manuscripts, the New Testament is the best attested to ancient document in existence. Now, that's a bold claim. Uh, But there are over 24,000 ancient manuscripts in Greek and other languages of the New Testament. Now, uh, let me put that into perspective. If we think about um, uh, Julius Caesar, nobody doubts that Julius Caesar lived. Uh, The works that contain um, his uh, story, um, there are 10 manuscripts the date when those manuscripts were written uh, was between 144 BC. Julius Caesar died 44 BC. Uh, but the earliest manuscripts we have are 900 AD. So they're removed by about 1,000 years from the event. And we have 10 manuscripts of that. Plato, he was a Greek philosopher, lived between 427 to 347 BC. Again, the earliest manuscript we have is about 900 AD. So 1,200, 1,300 years from when it was written. We have seven seven copies of that. Um, We could talk about Homer's Iliad, a Greek writer, date written about 900 BC. The earliest manuscript we have is 400 BC, 500-year difference, and there are 643 copies. Now, that sounds impressive until you realise the New Testament. The New Testament was written between 40 to 100 A.D., our earliest manuscript copies, copy is 125 AD, which means there's a 25 to 50 year gap between what we have and 
what was first written, and there are 24,000 ancient manuscripts for us to compare, to look at. And so uh, why are there so many copies? Why are there so many copies of the New Testament? Quite simply, without a photocopier, by the way, without a printer, all handwritten. Uh, That's a pretty impressive statistic from the ancient world. Why is that? Because those who wrote it believed it was of the utmost importance. I have a question. Mm. Why aren't we getting this information through the media? I mean, I I can't read this sort of stuff that you've been telling me today through the media. Look, I think in certain parts you can. I mean, this is the media. Um, So uh, there are certain places that you can find this information out. But I also believe that... It's interesting, when you throw enough mud, it sticks. And uh, I think the the questions raised by higher critics in the 19th century still remain in people's minds, even though they've been answered, and answered well in the last 200 years. Uh, The answers to those objections have been given, and I think very convincingly given. Um, You know, we can't cover all of those evidences today, but I believe uh, if people wanted... Um, extra information they could find it. There are two books that I think are are valuable in terms of um, uh, the Bible. The Canon of Scripture by F.F. Bruce is worthy uh, of reading to to talk about the authenticity of, you know, the reliability of the transition from the ancient documents to what we have today. Uh, And also by the same author, uh, the New Testament documents, Are They Reliable? uh, by F.F. Bruce. You can buy those Uh, in good bookstores. But I I think uh, the reason you don't hear about this in the media is the Bible has implications for our personal lives and for the lives in in our society. Um, You know, if I was thinking about the uh, Australian Constitution, for instance, I heard this, um, there was a conversation on ABC TV on Q&A, and there was an atheist present and there was also a Christian MP on the... uh, Program and they were having a discussion about whether or not Australia was a Christian country. And the Christian MP pointed out the fact that if you look at our constitution, it says, uh, whereas the people of New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, Queensland and Tasmania, humbly relying on the blessings of Almighty God, have agreed to unite in one indissoluble federal commonwealth under the crown of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. And, and it goes on. But the point is, in our very constitution, we said we're a nation under Almighty God. Uh, And uh, this MP was pointing that out. Now, of course, many people uh, in our society have drifted away from a belief in God. They've become agnostic or atheist or secular. Um, But in terms of what we believe as a people, it's going to shape our values. Mm. Um, And that's why I believe you hear less of the Bible, because it sometimes cuts against what I personally would like to do. Peter, it's been really great to be in conversation with you again today. Would you like to introduce our topic for next week? Certainly. Well, next week um, we're going to talk about the question is, did we really evolve? In the beginning, did we really evolve? Uh, I didn't grow up in a Christian environment. I didn't uh, grow up believing in the Bible or creation. I believed in evolution. Um, But those beliefs were challenged. And we want to talk about some of the uh, evidence. uh, You know, does it really matter? Evolution or creation, does it really matter which one we believe in? Does it matter? Can I be a Christian and believe in evolution? Uh, What difference does it make to me personally? We want to ask that question. In the beginning, did we really evolve? 
I look forward to that conversation. Peter, would you like to close um, our program today with prayer? By all means. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you that we can have confidence in reading the Bible, in knowing that what we read now was inspired by you so long ago and still speaks to our lives today. It has so much counsel, so much wisdom uh, that will help us in our day-to-day lives. And we thank you for that guidance. We thank you for the hopes that the Bible gives us, that uh, this world is not all that there is. And we thank you that it reveals who you are uh, and that the Bible can teach us that we can approach you, we can talk to you, we can have a living relationship with you. So please bless uh, those who hear this program today. And uh, I pray that uh, we will continue to search and search the scriptures for those uh, principles and those promises that you've given there. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Peter. I look forward to our conversation next time. Remember to join us next week. See you then. Bye for now, and God bless you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. 